Welcome to the Weird Era Podcast. Today we're talking to Naben Rutham. Naben Rutham lives in Toronto and is the author of Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race. Uh, as Nathan Ripley, he's the author of two thrillers, Find You in the Dark and Your Life is Mine. He also writes for film and television. A Hero of Our Time is a wry comic novel with acerbic wit, a vicious takedown of superficial diversity initiatives and tech culture with a beating heart of broken sincerity. Osman Shah is a pit stop on his white colleague Olivia Robinson's quest for corporate domination at AAP, an edutech startup determined to automate higher education. Osman, obsessed by Olivia's ability to successfully disguise ambition and self-interest as collectivist diversity politics, is bent on exposing her. Aided by his colleague turned comrade in arms, uh, Nana, who loathes and tolerates him in equal measure, Osman delves into Olivia's twisted past. But at every turn, he's stimmied by his unfailing gift for cruel observation, which he turns with most ferocity on himself, without ever noticing what it is that stops him from connecting to anyone in his past or present. As Osman loses his grip on his family, Nina, and everything he thought was essential to his identity, he confronts an enemy who may simply be too good at her job to be defeated. Uh, this book cracks the veneer of well-intentioned race conversations in the West, dismantles cheery narratives of progress through tech, and streamlined education, uh, and exposes the venomous self-congratulation and devouring lust for wealth, power, and property that lurks beneath. Hi, Nabin. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, also, I'll be honest with you. It was really hard, uh, though meaningful, to read Osman in all his self-deprecation. It made for a tough uh, sit-down. Um, on the fifth page of the novel, Osman reflects, I am myself when I'm inside a doubt. So at the same time, he has this impressive ability to truly reflect on this very self-deprecation in a, in a fairly deep way. Um, I'm wondering if Osman even realizes the level of ego it takes to be so acutely aware of itself, like as though this level of self-deprecation is ironically involved in a kind of overconfidence. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly something narcissistic and and self-glorifying about that level of self-obsession, even though it is, you know, toxically negative about himself and uh i mean the the flip of that he actually is um quite self-righteous like his quest against olivia doesn't really interrogate what her ultimate um motivations might be he doesn't actually care to know much about his supposed enemies or his supposed allies in in this whole this whole book so i think yes like the, his actual intense self-focus is truly part of his um it's part of his uh, narcissistic self-righteousness in an odd way. And what intrigued you about like putting yourself in the mentality of that kind of a character? What, what, what pulled you to that when it came to this book? Um, I, it, it did become important to me to have something about him that was truly markedly unheroic because there's something that's so clearly distinctly off-putting about Olivia. There's so many things about, about the villain of the novel that are unappealing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would also say like, you know, a lot of those almost hypnotic, uh, it's, I think it goes beyond self-deprecation, these sort of like 
drilling down into self-hatred and, and sort of um, dissections of his own body and of his own family and his own shortcomings. Those are actually, you know, I, I almost wrote those separately from a lot of the text because I did find those aspects of the character really interesting and fascinating in, in that they were these, um, in a strange reverse way, these sort of arrogant self-glorifying screeds. Uh, he's, he's, um, he's so proud of his negative insight into himself that it was, it was an easy voice to access, I'd say, in, in eventually as I was, I was writing on and on and it allowed for these sort of, you know, loose flowing and imagistic sentences that I, that, but it's still, I could write in the style that could be interpreted as self-indulgent in, in, in many other of the uh, genres I write in. But in this case, because that character, hopefully by that point is darkly interesting enough, I got to write exactly the way I wanted to stylistically. Ospen reflects um, what reading thousands of novels has taught me is that I am a coward. Can you talk to me about the ways in which literature can do this? You know, obviously you even mentioned it yourself, but I can't help but harken back to the title of this book too. Is f- fiction full of heroes? And it, I mean, it's, it's full of, I mean, of course <laughs> there's, a, there's all ranges in fiction. There's like straight right. up heroes in a very un- uncomplicated plots, but the, the Lermontov hero of our time in that case was an interrogation of, of what a romantic hero is. It, it took a lot of the, the tropes of, um, of, romantic hero literature and gave us this guy that's an utter scumbag, Pachorin. He's not, he's not a good guy. He's an unpleasant, mean person. Austin. So no, no, this is a Pachorin in Lermontov's right, right, right. time. But right. it, actually, you know what? The, uh, the, the description fits. I'll take it for, for Austin <laughs> too. Um, yeah, it was, a. Uh, so part of that is also that, um, Osman doesn't really know how to read properly. He knows, he knows how to, um, absorb and interrogate to a certain degree um, what he what he comes across in those texts, and he knows he eventually he's one of those identification readers. I think he he uh, he can't help but look for not himself in a text, but the things that he doesn't have in a text. So he's consistently um, opposed to the books he's reading, and I feel like he never really subsumes himself into a story or an artwork, and uh, that's why he that's why he's limited as both um, a person and a critic. I think. Here it is in the same vein. Osman addresses him, addresses us when he says compression and summary are real skills with real value. They are what allow me to live along with the primary self knowledge working for a of working for AAP. But it's it's not it's, it's it's the limits of your ability and understanding of yourself that prevents you from filling my chair. You're limited. You're limited, not me. Um, he's clearly trying to convince himself of this mm-hmm. truth, not yeah. the reader. Um, but it still reminded me of the same kind of overconfidence rooted in self-deprecation. Like, I don't, I don't know if he's being so critical in this whole book and almost mm-hmm. impressively astute about both himself and the people around him um, that I, I feel like he, he is, he's, he's actually good at everything that he thinks he's bad at. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in, in that little quotation you, you, you took out there, um, that's, that's basically him saying like everything he learned from, from books and from his education, from writing ends up being in terms of turning into an actionable skill in a corporate world, it just ends up being, you know, compression summary, these things, which 
you know, that's actually true. That's actually true. I, I'm not sure which which jobs you've worked here or there over the years, but for me, that was en- ended up being a large part of why I was able to make a living for a few years here in Toronto, was, was having those skills, being able to extract those from what I could do with language. Um, but yes, I think that's the trickiness of Osman, because of course, if he's entirely, entirely blind to what's going around on around him and in himself, the novel can't work. It can't function. Your, your, your guide cannot be entirely blind to what's happening around him. So, but I did also want to make it very clear, like, especially through the character of Nana, who's sort of his, his kind of ally and kind of girlfriend in this, that there is a lot that he's not seeing because he simply doesn't bother to ask. And I think his great, his great loss is is a lack of curiosity. He, he doesn't actually care about other people. He doesn't actually care about their aims and who they are. So as perceptive as, as he is, he's so fixated on reaching a conclusion and then acting on that conclusion that he ends up blunting his own perceptual instruments. And that's why he's an ineffective hero on this quest. Why was it so important to you to have a narrator who hated his physical appearance as much as Osman does? Um, for one thing, it was a... Uh, that was part of his distorted lens, the fact that, that he doesn't see himself accurately. And also, I mean, the extent to which he dislikes the way he looks, while it might reflect realistically on one's worst moments of, of looking at, at oneself or thinking about oneself, it eventually becomes so over the top and so recurrent that you're like, this is, even if you don't find it funny, you begin to find it absurd. Like the, it, it's, a, it's a slight clue as to as to how he's, how blind he is to himself and to those around him. Um, but also I did want to t- sort of touch on how sort of in the age of identity, one can become even dislocated from one's own body and one's own appearance that the self and the body begin to sort of split for a certain t- type of person. I've had these experiences myself. I, I think, geez, I think a lot of people, um, racialized people, other category people have had this this experience of being spoken to and addressed and, you know, they're, they're talking about your form and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, somebody's talking to you for what you represent, but you know, you'll never have a conversation with that person, not a real one because you yourself cannot enter it. You, you become a representative for the company that is your race or whatever else it might be. So I, I wanted to show him as being sort of separate from his body and that, that sense of, um, really disliking his form, really hating it to me was also a more interesting riff on it than, than if it had been him being ashamed of his race, because that's, I mean, that's such a, a well-mined trope in, 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 in identity lit and sometimes done really well, sometimes really interestingly, but I didn't feel it fit this book. Were you afraid of losing readers in this way? Because mm. as I mentioned, and I, I, I found this novel deeply rewarding um, and a, a wonderful experience. I mean, I made it a weird era pick for a reason. It's a great book, but it, it was hard to sit with this person. It's kind of hard to sit with a person across the room who's a kind of so self-loathing and so mm-hmm. caught up in their, in their own, in their own selves. Um, and I find myself describing this to our customers, but wanting to also hand sell them the book. Like I, I'm trying to tell them why this is such a rewarding experience to hang out with this annoying dude. Cause it is. And I wonder if that's something that ever, 
I mean, forget likable characters. Like, I, I, I don't need fiction yeah. to, to have likable characters. But do you know what I mean? Did, did you ever think about the kind of person you were serving up to your readers and oh. what you wanted them to sort of take away from it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll answer in sort of two sections. Like, for for the sort of art of it, the way I, I, I knew that this is such a difficult character and, and in order for the story to be, to function and to work and for people to want to continue with it, I had to mitigate how difficult he was with hopefully humor, how funny the situations and he himself can, can be and with, you know, enough plot, enough story to sort of engage and draw, draw the reader forward. But I also did know that as important as it was to me in the story to make him this way and to have these, um, you know, painful confrontations with the self. Um, I also, I knew I had, I had, I had to have it that way. Like the, the book needed to be that way, but I knew that it would, and it has lost readers like early on. Not, I, and I think it's mostly not so much an annoyance factor, but it's painful. It's painful to spend because it ends up, I, I, I think, you know, it ends up echoing a lot of truthful self-loathing for, for, mm-hmm. for, for readers, it, it ends up sounding very close to, you know, to your own negative self-talk, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's also an identification issue. They, they wonder if it's me. So I, th- mm-hmm. I know like people close to me who've read it have had difficulty getting through it because like, is this, is this your voice? Is this how you think of yourself? Um, yeah. So I did know that that difficulty would exist, but that's the way the book had to be. So I, I always lead with, you know, it's funny when I'm, when I'm trying to soft pitch it to people, like it's, a, it is funny. It's supposed to be funny, but yeah, I, I knew that difficulty would exist. It is funny. It is funny. Osman has this uh, masochistic relationship as, as we pointed out with his sort of girlfriend, not girlfriend, uh, Nana. He says, I wasn't scared of Nana, just in love with her. I wanted to be mean to her and have her be mean, but patient back. And finally, as kind as she was in the diner while my arm ached. What about heterosexuality or, or rather male desire are you illuminating here? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. <laughs> um, I mean, you I, wrote I, it. <laughs> I, can, I can only answer in a very particular sense of those characters, I guess. In, in his case... Um, whatever it is about her. And part of that is, I think quite extreme physical beauty. I think she's, you know, very conventionally, very beautiful, this character. She really represents something to him about the sort of perfected person of color that he can't be, that he really identifies, he thinks of her and their relationship as a, as a goal. Like if only I could be her, if only I could be with her, but not just that. If only I could have more of those qualities. More. If only I could be that person. And yet he's not that curious about what she is really like. He sees how she's received in the world and how she comports herself in the world. And even though he doesn't discuss that to death, that's the most important thing about her. Him is how she's able to sort of have the substantial inner life that he doesn't talk much about and doesn't actually access that much but also is able to do exactly what she wants to for the most part in the outside world. He can't do that. And that's sort of what he's falling in love with is her qualities. And at the same time, he, he needs her disdain in order to confirm to himself. Yes, I really am 
this repulsive and this bad at everything. Does that not feel particularly heterosexual to you? <laughs> I I do I guess so. Sure. You know what? Actually, no. I, I disagree. I think I think I've I've seen that in um, experientially. I've, I've I've been I I I know you know gay gay male relationships certainly that that mm-hmm. have that aspect of um envy and ambition and like your your ambitions end up sort of taking form in the idea of this perfect partner. But boy, I mean, as a very dully heterosexual man, the my my range of insights on what other kinds of relationships are like are necessarily limited. In one interaction with Samin, um, she tells Osman, I want to give you more time. What do you think of that? Osman then reflects, mom's habit of leading had been exciting when I was a child, excruciatingly annoying as a teenager and distant, distantly charming as an adult. Why does Osman oscillate this way when it comes to the women in his life, most of whom take on a leadership role? So you've got Nana, Gwen, Samin, everyone. Mm-hmm. He, he like he seems to um, thrive or have an inclination to, in his life to have female leadership. Yeah, I think he's both um, fascinated with and slightly re- resentful of um, power, women in power. And I think he recognizes it as as progress, like for example, his mother's his mother's sort of emergence from into it into a new life after the death of his father. She's 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 able to be something that is closer to the self that she always was, and um, he recognizes that as a positive. But he's also, I think, fascinated with the idea of blunt force power, as, as sort of incarnated by Olivia Robinson in in its various disguises. And uh, Nana's power is very much like she uses everything about her identity. She uses um, being a woman. She uses being a person of color. She carefully manages those things with the people she's interacting with in order to to emerge at maximum advantage, whether they're racist, whether they're hyper progressive, she can use that. But in Olivia's case, as she gets better and better at what she does and more and more powerful, I think he begins to perceive her, and certainly I think I do in, in my writing of the novel at, at certain points, is just sort of this this orb of force, just this just p- pure power, like a, in, an, in a very like president with the keys and buttons to the nukes way. She's, he, and in that power, she begins to sort of shed like a rocket ship aspects of her identity. And I think that's something that he finds really exciting and enviable the idea of just being an entity that has power and i think his way into that is sort of his um awkward examinations of of women in power in his life and and a sort of subsuming himself to their power and seeing if he can do that but of course he can't he still wants to be sort of the leader in all of these situations no matter how passive he seems to be why why does he want to lead because he believes he's correct he thinks he's right he knows he knows that he's doing the right thing. He knows what the right thing is. And uh, it's not true. He doesn't. But he doesn't think to ask the question of the people who actually may have the insight. So there's a lot of discussions that are that don't occur in this book that I think could make an interesting different book. If, if he did ask the question of Nina, if he did stay in that bar with Olivia Robinson and ask three or four more questions, if he did. Mm-hmm. At one point, 
Nina is meticulous about an outfit choice for a job opportunity with a Western person. Um, you write, she wrote, she wore an unbuttoned wool coat over top and was absolutely not, that was absolutely not warm enough when she went outside. But she would fit Brody's version of accessible cool and the band Im- Im- imagery would negate any sort of threat from her ethnicity. Uh, it would only make her light Westernized brownness pop. Um, this was a relatable sentiment to me uh, as a Southeast Asian woman, the ways in which we can use our otherness to reshape our identity into something not only palatable to Western culture, but in doing so, it almost invokes a new identity altogether. Um, that's, again, not only palatable, but almost more interesting. Um, so, you, you know, and this is something you explore in the entire novel. You have all these uh, essentially contemporary characters using whatever disadvantages they have, um, and then in turn using them to as sources of advantage. So, I'm a I'm a woman. I'm I suffer from this illness. I'm a I'm a person of color, etc. And I think you sort of brilliantly align this contemporary moralistic thought with capitalism. I mean, you know, that's what you're you're doing it. You're aligning it with this logic of startup culture. Um, it's pretty similar in that way. I guess in in reading, I was wondering, what do you find disingenuous about millennial morality? <laughs> A lot, you know, there's nothing more disingenuous about millennial morality than there was in a, you know, Restoration England, like what you'll see in a play by Witcherly. Um, hypocrisy and the lust for power are 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 most they're the things that are closest to the human heart, and we'll we'll never outgrow them. Um, it's the particular shape of it, the things that I'm, that you just mentioned that I'm poking the most fun at in this book and exploring. That's just the way it looks right now. So of course, that's what I'm going to write about in a non-historical novel. But, um, I also, the other thing though, I, I did, I was aware that doing this, like showing people using these, these elements to their, to their advantage is exactly what, you know, sort of center left racists think that we all do basically Mm -hmm. it's like well yeah i mean that's how they get that job so that that was the most difficult tightrope of the book of course because you know all these characters are really doing these things they're really using these aspects of their identity to their advantage but by having everybody in the book be a fake to some degree again it was like osman's persistent self-loathing like eventually it piles up to the point where this, this level of deception, of universal deception, is slightly absurd. So this book is breaking with the real in, 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 a, in a slight way. And I think I really concretize that most with his parents because his parents play games of pretend in their own lives that are revealed over the course of the book that they wouldn't have needed to and that, aren't, that don't touch on the more millennial capitalistic points of this book. So that's where I started pointing at, you know, my perceptive racist reader would say like, okay, so this is actually not confirming everything that I suspected about what these, what these dark skinned people are up to. This is actually entering a world of absurdity. That's actually poking fun at me and my assumptions about how identity is used. Um, And yeah, marrying it to capital to money was really important because everybody in this book who is faking things makes enough money to be able to be in control of their identity. Right. That's to, to some degree. And, you know, most people, uh, percentage wise, most people who look like me don't make enough money to, ha- to have any sort of control over their identity. They're seen as what they are and their their lives are affected accordingly. 
you've said it yourself that you're you're sort of poking fun at the expectations of what you know, like you said, like a centrist left would assume of you know minority groups and the ways in mm-hmm. which they function. That being said, these characters still felt deeply real and and human to me, mm-hmm. and and you kept pointing out the absurdity of of sort of their behavior in this situation. And I see that definitely. I mean, you kind of have to do that. That's what moves the plot. Um, but they also still felt like people I would know that I I, I do know that I have met. Um, and I wonder if, if that is something true for you as well. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's, that's such a trick in fiction. It's so hard. Like the, the checks do well, like Kundera and Raval and, Roth, I think, does it really well. And mm-hmm. where you have these um these people who are like really sweatingly human and real. And the things that are happening to them in these books are not necessarily real. Mm-hmm. And and eventually the extremes of their behavior become very unreal. But for me, like I, I write character-based fiction across every genre. Like if the character is not real to me, I begin to lose interest in it. And I, I mm-hmm. think that's the same for most readers as well. Mm-hmm. Um it was very important to me that they did that they did seem real. And I can add a little supplementary answer to, to your millennial morality <laughs> query because, but it is more or less in the back cover copy. Um, what I find specifically hypocritical is the disguise of um, a lust for power as political progressiveness. And you see this in no matter what area you work in. If you work at Microsoft, if you work in the arts, you know somebody in your organization. They might be a person of color. They might not be. They might be from Group X. They might be from Group Y. You know that person, what they're saying about diversity, what they're mm-hmm. saying about lifting us all up. You look deep into their eyes and soul, and you're like, this is about you. You, mm-hmm. you, want, you want the big hat, and you want the big chair. And mm-hmm. I, anytime I say this to people or any the, the readers, what, what readers I did have for this book, they recognize that person. They rec- mm-hmm. they they asked me usually o- often I'll be asked who's Olivia Robinson based on if it's somebody who knows me they'll, they'll ask is it X or Y and it's it's not it's not but Olivia Robinson is certainly based on that person you're thinking of when I describe those people who use who use our right thinking in order to leverage their own personal power. Nana does it too, though, as a person mm-hmm. of color. Um, which complicates the situation. She is also in the pursuit of this. She's also driven by this lust of power, um, which, so that brings me to this point. At one point she reflects on immigrant wealth. She says, each of us gets five years of peak earning to suck in all the money we possibly can and make that money explode into wealth that will sustain the rest of our lives or we're fucked. Uh, As a person of color yourself, would you agree with this sentiment? That was that was more about, I'd say, about people of that age, of my age, or people between our ages, I think. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how we, but I think it is true for you and true for me too. Yes. <laughs> that um at least that mindset is very much a true thing. Um it seems that there's a point in one's life where like money is available and expands and that seems like a window that cl- that is closing even as it opens. So it's up to you to, to sort of grab all that you can in order to have anything resembling like a happy life ahead of you. These are thoughts that occurred to me to, to and I think to a lot of people. And I actually think Nana is, she doesn't have a lust for power. She has a lust for wealth in, in the book, throughout the book. And there's a suggestion though at the end that, that that's not all there is to her. 
certainly that there's a lot that Osman doesn't know about her that she thought she wanted, you know, enough as Osman does like enough money to like, you know, build a pyramid to bury yourself in and just never have to worry about anything again. She's not like that. There's something, there's something in her that really does care about affecting some sort of change in the world and, and certainly establishing connection to other people. But in her case, yeah, she's willing to play the game of, um, of identity and manipulating her own identity to get to positions that will allow her to make the most money possible in the shortest amount of time possible. It just sort of feels like a commentary on the forcible way in which minorities are, are asked to play the game that they never Mm -hmm. wanted to be a part of in the first place. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There, there certainly isn't, there's certainly a strong aspect of that. And you kind of see that in her, her dad is sort of like the failed hustler, immigrant dad, who doesn't quite mm-hmm. make it. Like it was one one of the other versions of her dad that she talks about in this book, maybe true or not. Um, I think though everybody in this book eventually becomes fascinated by by the game and of capitalism and and vicious competition and and begins to love it. Like uh, even if they weren't quite born to it, and even if Osmond turns to it like sort of perversely against his parents and against everything he loves it eventually begins to define them. And uh, I didn't, I didn't want to give them a sort of out of, I didn't want readers to think like Osman and Nana have sort of been cornered into these decisions. I don't, I don't think they have been. They, they've made a lot of decisions that have led them to work for this company in this place, but Mm -hmm. they were their decisions for the most part. Why is that important to you? because I didn't want it to be a, um, a, a sad immigrant story in a certain way of uh, trapped, trapped immigrants who are just mm-hmm. enacting um, the, the path that has been following the path that has been set out for them. Because that to me in this book would have been less interesting because it, it removes so many moral questions. If you say like, well, Osman has to do this, Nana has to do this. I, I don't, I don't want to give them an individual moral out. because you wanted them to be real and complicated. Exactly. Osman's relationship to his mother also felt like such a unique reading to me, uh, especially in the, again, in the context of conservative South Asian cultures, uh, Southeast Asian cultures, there's an immense emotional distance. He literally calls her by her first name uh, more than mom. Uh, but there's a heavy intellectual connection in which the emotional aspect is in fact revealed. You know, you write, they slept in separate beds, but burped and yawned in the same rooms. This too felt feels very ethnic to me. Uh, the ways in which it's impossible to, betray intimacy and family while also being the sort of people that can never say, I love you. Um, have you ever read these themes being explored elsewhere? Is this something you think is lacking or represented at all in contemporary fiction? I personally haven't seen it. I don't see myself from my, my life in this way reflected. And I wonder if you have. I think a lot of that, I, I do hope a lot of it is original to this book. I, I haven't seen that relationship most. And it's, it's definitely the thing that um, my readers who are South Asian and, and otherwise people of color, that's, that's the part that they have responded to most. They really like and enjoy that. So I think that in some ways there is something there that is only in this book, which is cool. But in terms of what I stole or was influenced by, it's definitely 
um, my friends, the American Jews, um, Malamud, uh, Roth again, Saul Bellow. I feel you have these, uh, there are more complex nuanced relationships that are allowed in that, in that kind of fiction or allowed in that kind of fiction from the forties, fifties, sixties onwards. And I see so many parallels between South Asian diaspora family life and Jewish diaspora family life in the mm-hmm. home, especially, uh, especially with this, like the, thankfully there's no, there's no aspect of this parental relationship that is based upon my own, my own life other than the intellectual con- connection part. Like I can talk to my parents about films and books and often with my father, that's all we talk about. And then, you know, move on mm-hmm. to like deeper topics very occasionally, but that also, I think, is something that's very much in a lot of those books by, by, by those, those Jewish American writers. Um, so, yeah, I think that was my, my central touchstone for talking about family stuff is why can't more South Asian writers allow themselves to do this? I, I, I really I would love to see more different specific realities of family life reflected in those books. I mean, of course, I'm leaving out a Kill Sharma whose book Family Life is one of the most complex and interesting and nuanced portrayals of a family in, in world history, historical fiction ever. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, so it's happening, of course, but I just want what the American Jews had in 1973. And I'm going I'm to do it. Do you think it's going to be a recurring theme in your fiction as you go forward? That's interesting. Um, I think it will probably arise, but that's something that I, it challenges me as I age and continue to write is that, you know, I'm engaged, we'll be married soon, but I don't have a family as, as my, as my parents had a family. I don't have children. Um, I begin to wonder if that will sort of limit the realities I can write about. Hmm. And I also, I don't know how interested I'll be in writing about relationships with parents as my narrators age along with me. I wonder if it'll, it will become sort of a juvenile aspect of my writing. If I continue to dwell on the parts of family life that I am familiar with and that I can extrapolate from, because if there's an aspect of identity writing that I feel uncomfortable doing, I I feel, I feel comfortable putting myself into most characters, writing most characters writing parenthood and the the relationship between a parent and a child, like a small child or a teenager, that's hard for me. I always feel like a faker when I'm doing it because it is so foreign to me. Um, but yeah, as you can tell from my convoluted answer here, questions of family are very important to me clearly still. So of course they're going to turn up in my fiction. I just don't know how yet. Does Osman live with you do you ever sometimes just like think about like what he's doing right now (laughs) i well the house that i use in for his childhood home is on my street it's like it's a beautiful house owned by a nice couple the great garden up front so i do yes i imagine he's just he's in that basement there um he's i I imagine he's more or less as he ends up at the end of the novel I, i mean not to bum you out but that's the rest of his life and I imagine that there'll be a sort of static, neutral feeling that he comes to think of as happiness and contentment that will animate him. And I, I, I imagine he'll sooner than later be completely offline. It'll just be him in the house, the books, getting groceries delivered. 
probably more takeout than groceries, honestly. And it's just going to be a smaller and smaller life, but that's what he wanted. This too is a person we all know. <laughs> yes. Um, I was wondering, uh, you know, outside of the context of this book and in, in reading your bio, you have um, all these other published uh, works. So you, you, you're an author of two thrillers uh, for which you use a pseudonym, Nathan mm-hmm. Ripley. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk to me about your choice to do that. Yeah, that, that's a choice that goes back to high school. I, I chose, I chose, I decided that, you know, not only did I want to write brilliant masterpiece literary fiction, as I thought was very much within my grasp when I was 15, I wanted to write, you know, werewolf movies and crazy horror stuff and, and mystery novels too. Um, so it just made very much sense to me modeling myself on writers of the past to be like, well, why don't I just have two different names? And at that time I chose Nathan Ripley because you know, Nathan sounds like my name. Ripley's from the movie Aliens. I like that character. Just sounded cool to me. Of course, like by the time I was actually an active working writer, I realized there's there's a charge to choosing like a, this very waspy name as your pseudonym. Mm-hmm. My, tra- my my pseudonym is transparent. Like if you flip those books over, it's my picture. It says Nathan Ripley is to Ben Rutham. But um, it became something that I was more conscious of. I still wanted to have this this other identity to write specifically psychological thrillers, because I feel those are very market circumscribed of what kind of books they are. And the audience is a bit more expectation laden. Like we want, I feel like a lot of Nathan Ripley readers would have no interest in a hero of our time, for example. But yeah, when it came time, like, do I pick a, a pseudonym that sort of reflects my cultural background now, or do I pick up, pick stick with the one that I made up when I was 14? Because you know, it's been been part of my creative life since I was a teenager. And I, I chose that. And then, yeah, I, t- I talk about this a little bit at the end of Curry, just that there also was a sort of pleasure in the idea of like arriving on an editor's desk with a completely neutral name, like a name that has the, uh, the, the privilege of being anonymous and association free because it doesn't sound like, oh, he's X kind of foreigner. Um, right. That was good. That was nice. But yeah, I think a lot of, not a lot, but there's certainly whispering in some genre fiction community about me white facing and stuff. Just, you know, it's going to happen. It's a, it's a familial thing. You have a, I mean, no one, no one questions a, a, a rappers. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> sure. over time, yes. who still maybe isn't, the name doesn't really uphold. Maybe 50 cent is not the greatest <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> pseudonym over time, but no one, no one, you know, sort of accuses um, identities of that na- of that nature of sort of any false falseness or, or, or yeah. anything. But I do, I do, I am glad that you are transparent about it, and I am glad that you published this book uh, under your name, which also felt necessary given the themes mm-hmm. explored in the book. Um, and I thank you for your time. <laughs> um, Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, Weird Era listeners, you can pick up a copy of A Hero of Our Time on the Weird Era shelf at Library St. Henry Books. Um, and tune in next week for another episode. Thanks. <laughs>